Good morning. And it is good. I'm just glad that we can make it here the, today. Way it was uh, looking earlier in the week. <laughs> Looked like it could be a little bit mysterious of what was going to happen, but it's good to be here and it's warming up. Actually, it's getting pretty warm in here. You can almost take this off. Huh? Cool this part down? Let's grab it. Uh, it was the 25th of February, 1964. Anybody remember those days? 64. Just yesterday, <laughs> there was a 22-year-old boxer who had just defeated the world heavyweight champion and a microphone was thrust into his face as he left the ring. He loved it. He declared this, I am the greatest. I am the greatest thing that I've ever lived. I've just turned 22 years old and I've upset the heavyweight champion of the world. I must be the greatest. I've showed the world. I've shook up the world. I'm the king of the world. Listen to me. I'm the greatest. I can't be beat. Some of you guys might know who that is. He was known as Cassius Clay. Better known, and you're still wondering who's that, that was Muhammad Ali later on. He was the greatest, and he let people know about it. That was whenever sports braggadocio kind of started. He started something, and of course... You know, it's a representative of our society. Of course, at that time, there was racial unrest and there were social tensions, disagreements uh, about the war, you know. But he became the focal point back there in those early 60s and throughout the 60s. And there's probably one reason why he did it was to get attention. And he did. Um... Matter of fact, I think another reason why he did it was to get into the heads of the opponents, too. Because <laughs> whenever they faced him, it was like he was much greater. Nobody beat him, right? Anyway, if you'll notice uh, what he did then, you basically have a lot of the same thing happening today. You can look in the sports world. Sports culture, you know, I'm a fan of the Chiefs, and they play for their championship game today. Of course, on that field, whenever somebody makes a, a play, may not even be a great play, just a play, they get up and just, you know, act like some kind of animal. And, of course, when they get a sack, you know, they do their dance. When somebody gets a touchdown, they do some kind of a war dance and, and uh, people think it's the greatest and they think they're the greatest. Or somebody hits a basket in basketball, you know, hits a three-pointer and they'll put up their hand for everybody to see, you know, look what I did. Um, that's called pride, actually, uh, when you think about it. I know it, it kind of gets the crowd up and the, the fans up, but there were there were times, a time whenever somebody would do that, the coach would drag him off the court or off the field, and that guy would not be playing. But that's kind of changed <laughs> in our time. But um, at, at any rate, when we talk about pride... You can look at the disciples and see that they struggle with pride. These are the disciples, the apostles, who struggle with uh, self-preoccupation. I guess. I guess I, uh, you know, they uh, 
The problem with pride and that is that it's about ourselves, really. And even though we may not, you know, shoot up our hand and dance and make everybody draw uh, their eyes to us, and as we try to draw attention, I may not be doing that. But emanating from the very human heart is the very crux of uh, the human nature, uh, original sin is really about pride. It's about self. Uh, The nature is selfish, isn't it? And that's really what we focus on. And it is unusual not to be thinking about self. But we know that Jesus has already stated that we are to deny ourselves and take up the cross and follow Him. uh, We're called to live lives uh, that would be of humility which is the exact opposite of what is naturally in the flesh. You know, we're born with this pride, selfish nature. So Christianity goes against the grain, once again, of everything that is in the flesh and that's in the world, right? goes against the grain of that. Throughout our Christian lives, there are other things that we discover that is, really it's natural to the flesh, but to the Christian life, it is to be changed. You know, the very heart of the Christian gospel is is humility, and uh, Christ coming here to earth, He humbled Himself, humbled Himself to the point of, of death on a cross. That is humility, and so we know we're at odds. It's you know, even as Christians, we battle against this pride. We we know that it's there. But it is natural in the flesh constantly. And humility is to win out. And uh, throughout all Scripture we will see that what God commanded about humility is there throughout Scripture. It's to be humble. And of course our teacher, Jesus Christ, He's always teaching us lessons. It went against the grain at that time. It goes against the grain today, doesn't it? as it always has. We study from uh, Luke. We go in there every week, don't we? And look at really the life of Christ and His ministry and, and how He has called followers. And those followers are to follow Him, obey Him. He gives us different ways to think. It gives us different ways to behave. It's a lifelong effort, isn't it? By His grace. And He wants us to perceive these things that are not natural. They're supernatural. Things of God. And so as we turn to our text and we want to go to the class of in the school of Christ, we want to learn again more from Christ. He's our teacher. We want to learn about humility today and also mercy. And those two really go together. So let's grab our Bibles in Luke chapter 9, starting at uh, verse 46. An argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. But Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in the heart, took a child and stood, by, stood him by his side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives Him who sent me. For the one who is the least among all of you, this is the one who is 
great. John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to prevent him because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against us, against you, is for you. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him because he was traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, said, You do not know what kind of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. They went on to another village. Father, as you teach us again what your truth is, certainly goes against what we would ordinarily have in our own lives if we were not of you. This sounds strange as we talk about being humble people, being merciful people, because that's not the way, the natural way of mankind. So as we, as Christians, by your Spirit, realize that your Word is speaking to us here, may we take it a little step further in our own lives to be able to practice these kind of things in our lives from day to day. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. True greatness. That's what we're talking about. Here's the truly great. He lifted those up, those people who are His, and says, these are the great ones, the Christians, believers. They're humble, they're merciful. And He says, okay, there are not many mighty, not many noble. There are people that would be considered to be the least, and He chooses them to bring in His to His kingdom. Some of those people are us brought us into His kingdom. We certainly don't deserve it. Well, the disciples are walking along with Christ. They've been walking with Him for a couple of years, somewhere around that area. And there's a really, I think, a very intense irony here because it says an argument started among them as to which of them might be the greatest. So they're arguing about who's the greatest. What's the irony? Well, if you were to back up a little bit, you would see that Jesus has discussed with them that the Son of Man is going to be rejected. That is what we're talking about. That's what He said in um, verse 44. Let these words sink into your ears, for the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. Of course, they don't understand that. But He said, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be crucified. Of course, They don't get it, and they certainly don't get it as they go along, as they're moving towards Capernaum, they're returning to their headquarters, they're moving all about, still in Galilee, but he's heading also towards Jerusalem, ultimately. That's where he will be crucified. So there they are returning to Capernaum, arguing who is the greatest after Jesus has said, they're going to reject me. (laughs) 
um, apparently it had been going for quite some time along the road as they traveled. So when they got there, it surfaced. So as they talk about this conversation, it's not the only time, is it? We know that uh, on their way to the upper room, the night before Christ's arrest, they were arguing that. Of course, that very night He washed their feet, the ultimate humility. And then as they walked out of the upper room, guess what they were discussing? Who was the greatest? His kingdom is ready to just explode and each one of them wants to be right at the top with Him. So they have quite a desire. So, why do the disciples, why are they arguing amongst themselves? They're on the same side. They're on the winning side here. Well, there were incidents just before this. There was the Mount of Transfiguration. There are twelve disciples. How many of them went up to the Mount? Three. Peter, James, and John. What do you think that brought to the other nine? They didn't get to go. How about the the three? Peter, James, John. James and John, we know, are the sons of thunder. Peter is the big mouth. The other nine are saying, what in the world? Why is he in this inner circle? It's like he's a spokesman for all the apostles. Wow. You would have thought that these are the disciples. They've been following Christ. They should be immune to anything, especially like pride, right? They should not be talking about who is the greatest. Well, that's true. What privileges they had. By the way, the nine couldn't even cast the demon out of the young boy. You remember that? We talked about that back a few weeks ago. Well, you missed one week and it seems like it was months ago or something. But you know what? I think what the problem was is that they overestimated themselves. They underestimated God. They overestimated themselves. I think they took themselves very seriously, too seriously, rather than what God's plan was. Uh, Look to uh, Luke chapter 22, verse 24. Luke 22-24 There rose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. Now this is our same Luke, right? Chapters later. This is not this time that we're talking about now. Here are they are again. After, you know, the Lord had taught them a lesson. And He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it's not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one 
who serves. Who is the epitome of humility? Christ. He is the King who serves. What's always got me in the Gospels, in Matthew, you see him as the king. He's the king. In the book of Mark, you get the flip-flop. He's the servant. The son of man. He's the son of David, or the king, in Matthew. Interesting, isn't it? Christ is our humble servant who is the king. The one who lords over all of our lives. Matthew 20, verse 21. Of course, we know He came not to be served, but to give His life as a ransom. He came here to serve, didn't He? Matthew 20, verse 21. Here is James and John's mother. And she just bows down and makes a request of Him. Verse 21, he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. Absolute authority. Her sons, they deserve the best. But Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Then they said to him, We are able. Oh, do you really think so? My cup you shall drink, he said. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give. But it's for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. There it is. They had a high view of themselves, didn't they? We're ready. They had a low view of the greatness of God. That's really what we want to have, isn't it? It's one of the models of our church to have a high view of God. When we do that, we humble ourselves because we see that the attention is upon Him. It's not about us. It's all about Him. But when we have our attention on Him, what kind of benefits do we get out of that? Everything as we see truth being put into our lives as we learn from our teacher, Jesus Christ. So pride was at the very root of original sin when you had Eve. She thought she could be like God. She was told that she could. That's what she wanted to be like God. And of course she ate the forbidden fruit. She did what she wanted to do rather than what God had said and that was about pride because it was about self. I would rather do it my way than God's way. That's ultimate teaching of what pride is. I'd rather do it my way. So to deal with pride, we must confess that we are selfish. That we rebel against God and His way. And we humble ourselves before Him. And that's how we are to deal with it. We know that we are to repent of pride and seek His grace. I keep saying pride, it's selfishness, it's us, it's really whatever it is. We might not go around, I don't think anybody here goes around saying, I'm the greatest, or look look what I do, look how good I am. Nobody does that. And we know better, you know. And But at the same time, we, we think life revolves around us. And uh, 
What does pride do? What does pride do to a family or to a church or to a, you know, a group of people? Well, it destroys unity, doesn't it? Because you have unity in a body of Christ, for instance. And what pride can do is just separate people. This is, uh, I think, probably the most common destroyer of any kind of spiritual ministry. You remember in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul uh, was saying that there were people saying, I'm of Paul. And some of them were of Peter, of Cephas, and Apollos. So they had their little denominations going at that time. They followed certain ones. And they had their own prideful way of you know, saying who they followed, although the, all those men were men of God who taught the Word of God. Uh, pride ranks people. Says that certain people are better than others. It pits people against each other. Um, there's no ranking. There's no pecking order in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is going to teach in His lesson. There's not a, a pecking order in this. Who's the greatest? It's the one who's the least. Who's that? It's really all of us, isn't it? Jesus picked up on what they were talking about. It was like they knew that this probably wasn't right, but He didn't really hear them. But yet He actually did, didn't He? He knew what was in their hearts and what they were going on. And He knows what they're thinking in their hearts. Even if they didn't say a thing out of their mouths, He knows what's going on there. And so he says it's time to pick up a, a little one here. You know, talk about receiving those little ones, the least. A child would be unimportant, you know, as far as day-to-day living, the things that would be needed to be done to carry on in the household and wherever. Um, so Jesus is going to be using this child. And a child is representing us. What, what you know, uh, the whole idea is no matter how unimportant somebody may be in society, they are important. And so he's going to stress that now. He uses the word, uh, the, the, Word child here, or uh, says in 48 or 47, Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side. This child would be one that is very, very, very young. Uh, It's a very small child. We're probably talking like a toddler because he is actually at the side, he's standing at the side of Jesus, but yet Jesus then puts him into his arms. So, wouldn't be a child of eight, nine, ten years old. That wouldn't be too normal, would it? And so that, that's the idea. If you look in Mark nine thirty six, taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, "Whoever sees a child." Uh, If you turn to Matthew 18, you get the same story. Verse 1, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? 
And he called a child to himself and set to him before them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So, uh, there again, Jesus uses a great illustration of a child being great in the kingdom. This is us. We're like children. We're like a child. We're not accomplished people. When we came to Christ, it wasn't that we uh, had everything together, that we had accomplished much in the kingdom of God. We had nothing to be commended for, did we? When we came to Christ, He brought us there. But He's saying, children are great. He says, this is the one who is great. This little child. Absolutely dependent. A toddler couldn't live on their own. <clears throat> they couldn't feed themselves very long, could they? They couldn't get the, the basic necessities for them as they would continue on without somebody helping them. Um, <clears throat> that is where we're getting to. Nobody comes into my kingdom unless they come in like this little child. None of you brought anything into the kingdom. It's all the mercy of God. It's all the grace of God. But this illustration here of this child is the best way to show who we are. Little children. Um, We have no rank in the kingdom of God. There is no rank except for Christ being king. We're part of His kingdom. It's all about the grace, the goodness of God, isn't it? The mercy of God. Some men take great pride by having names or great accomplishments they've done on this world. And there's nothing bad about people accomplishing things. Please don't get me wrong. You know, in this life, it's that's a good thing to do. But to stress it, and sometimes you know you even think people have to make sure that they are called doctor or certain titles that they have, and they they stress it that they want that to be called that. That is a great example of human pride, and I know that uh, we all kind of despise that when people stress that. You know, it kind of gets to us in the sense why do they have to keep saying that title and that title? You are just who you are because it's a matter of drawing attention that I'm a little bit higher than you. I rank over you. And that is pride. There's no ranking. There's no pecking order in the kingdom. Um, We're all in equality. Some of us might have been a Christian longer, might know a lot more things But that doesn't make one any better than another, no matter who they are, does it? So it's not greater and greatest. It's anybody in the kingdom, in the sphere of salvation. They are great. And that's why he went to this extent to take that little child and to say that. Humility. That is absolute humility. That's, uh, of course, we know that little children still have rebellion in them. But you get the idea why he's doing that. The uh, dependence they have upon 
people, parents and such. Philippians chapter 2 is probably the epitome of humility. Verse 3, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interest, but also for the interest of others. That's a Christian. And it's because Christ practiced that. By having His Holy Spirit, we too can do that. He says to regard others higher than yourselves. That's pretty remarkable, isn't it? Do you think you'd hear anything like that in the realm of the world? To regard somebody higher than another? Than yourself? Um, look at Luke 18.14. <clears throat> Remember the Pharisee and the tax collector? Pharisee says, Thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that man. And this man is over there praying, Lord, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. I need you. He wasn't saying how often he fasted, how often he prayed. He says, Verse 14, Jesus says, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. The least will be the greatest. The greatest are the ones that are in the kingdom of God. We can be considered to be least here in this world. Little people, children, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. This is Peter. Yeah, remember Peter? As we uh, uh, look in Luke, he would probably be one of those saying that he was the greatest, right? But here he is later on as he's filled with God's Spirit and he has the Spirit of God to write down the Word of God. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. Humble yourselves. He will exalt you. That is guaranteed. Greatness is found in an attitude. It's called humility. That is one who is great. Defined by Jesus. Defined by the world. Could be a laughing stock. Everything that we're talking about here, I know uh, if people know what you believe and what you're about, if, they don't, if they're not a Christian and they don't know uh, these kind of things we're saying, they'd say, that doesn't work. That's, that's stupidness. We're saying what Jesus taught. And in Matthew 25, I'm not going to go there, but in Matthew 25, 35 to 45, He talks about the ones who are great. They are the ones who receive God's people. Receiving a child is like receiving God. 
as it's said here in, in Luke. So, if you receive that child, then you receive me. It, who, who gave us the water? Who gave us the food? Right? Who did that? It was the people that were considered to be the least. And they were the ones who were blessed. Jesus sometimes says things that seem so opposite, right? I could say these same things to an unbeliever. And they would actually make either light of what I just said, just put it all together. You know, that's just crazy. I don't believe that. Have you ever felt that way? I mean, has anybody ever done that to you? I'm sure. Because, yeah, we, we take a stance that is definitely oddball to them. This is an opposite end of the spectrum teaching again. It's coming from Christ. If you're a Christian, you're not ashamed of it at all. But if you're a Christian and you're ashamed of it, you've got to say, well, then I guess I'm really ashamed of Christ. That's number one. We go to that was and that was Jesus using a picture here of the, the child, a, a great illustration that was a living illustration. So we go to the second one, and it's talking about this one who was doing ministry in Christ's name that the disciples didn't know. And he was doing some really amazing things. So I don't and I don't know the attitude of John here at this moment. Jesus has just said, This is the one who is great, the least among you. So he used the child. John then answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to prevent him, because he does not follow along with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not hinder him, for he who is not against you is for you. So what's happening here with with, uh, John? This is what they had seen when they were out ministering. Remember when they were sent out by Jesus? You know, two by twos. And they saw this guy. He's casting out demons. Doing miracles. John could be saying, we did something kind of terrible. In our little pecking order that we have, and who is the greatest, maybe this is something we shouldn't have done. Now he could be saying that. I don't know. Why is it that he brought this up even? And maybe he is like confessing, saying, maybe we did something like that, and this is not talking about how great we were or, or anybody else that we, we just told him to. What? what? What did he say? He told him to stop it, right? We, we prevented him. Because he he's not part of us. So the Lord just allowed this one loose guy out there to be roaming around and have the same power that they had. Now think of that. They thought they were the only ones. He actually had somebody else out there. Were there many other ones? Well, we don't get any other... Uh, statements, no other scriptures dealing with that. But we can say at least one guy was doing exactly what they were doing. And of course with their pride, who is this guy? So, you know, how what is his uh, idea here? Was he was he seeking to justify himself? 
You know, hey, we saw this guy and I want to tell you what we did. I mean, this is a picture of pride, isn't it? We stopped him. Yeah? Or is he confessing his sin in light of the teaching that Jesus just gave? I'd like to think it's that. I don't know. I really don't. I've read this for years. And I thought this week I'd finally get the answer to that. Still looking. Let me know what you guys come up with. It's kind of interesting. If we don't know, maybe we'll learn later. Someone's casting out demons in Jesus' name. Stop it. They tried to hinder Him. Jesus then corrects John. says, do not hinder Him. For He who is not against you is actually for you. He's on the same side. That had to be mind-blowing to them. What? He's got others? We have this... We're the apostles. And actually, I'm at the top. John might have been the very one that was getting ready to maybe... Who knows? Do the same thing about what he's going to what he uh, what he said later here, right at the end of chapter nine, about uh, commanding fire to come down from heaven and consume them. Son of thunder. <laughs> um, there is actually a true diversity. I hear that word today, and it uh, kind of makes me cringe, especially what. You know, we hear of out in the world about diversity and it can mean anything and everything. And uh, whether it be homosexuality, somebody takes a different view on abortion, you know, just go on and on and on. And those things, anything that contradicts God's word, we do know that that is wrong. And we're not to be tolerant to that in our thinking. It's not we're going to change people's minds. Maybe we, we can't do that. But we don't tolerate what they do. We don't do the same thing. You know, we don't want to do that. But there's a true diversity where there are other people that God has that they're doing something maybe a little bit different, but it's still all for the glory of God. So the main thing here is that he wants them to guard against pride and to be kind and gracious even when there is some kind of seemingly disagreement. There really shouldn't have been a disagreement. If this guy's doing this, where's he getting the power from? You know? There might be other professing Christians out there who have maybe some different thoughts, but they are of God. Um, we might maybe argue profusely on what our doctrine is versus theirs, but if they truly are of Christ, then we're not to disclude them from the kingdom of God if they profess Christ and, and they are, they show fruit of that. So, you know, a lot of denominationalism there, I think, that, uh, that you could see. And, of course, I'm of this denomination and this is the greatest and... Whatever, whatever you grow up with or whatever you are now, it really comes down to who that person is in Christ. So Jesus teaches something there that's pretty, uh, very helpful, I think, for all ages there. And then we come to mercy. To people who definitely don't deserve mercy. Matter of fact, they would not have mercy, but you show mercy to the unmerciful. 
Verse 51, when the days were approaching for His ascension, He was determined to go to Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead of Him and they went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Him. Stop there. Okay, what's happening is that it says that Jesus is determined to go to Jerusalem. Or He set His face like flint. That means He's going to do it. He's going to Jerusalem. The only thing is, we've got maybe close to a year yet before the crucifixion. That's where we're at now in this timeline in Luke. So is He going to go right to Jerusalem? Well, that's a long trip. It'll actually only take a few days at the most from where they're at to get to Jerusalem. But you're going to see this from, from here on out. What He's doing, He's teaching the disciples, isn't He? You've seen that in... in uh, whether it be the cost of discipleship, the transfiguration, um, Christ prophesying His death. Now He's showing what true greatness is. A lot of lessons here. That He's jam-packing it in. We're talking months now. It's where He's really destined to go is to Jerusalem. In the meantime, He's going to meander and move around before He goes down to Jerusalem. And He might even go there um, uh, for like a particular little short stint and then back on out to Galilee. And then, but there's going to be an ultimate time. And, and so it says here, when the days were approaching for His ascension, ascension can be two ways. Ascension could be Him being lifted up on the cross. Like it says in John 3, um, that is probably one idea of that ascension. Or the ascension could be where He ascended on into heaven. After the death, burial, resurrection, 40 days and then He ascended, right? Um, I just throw that out there. Take one. Take both of them. I've, I've, seen, I've seen where people have stated that they really think the ascension is that ascension where He went to heaven. But he has to go to the cross first, so hey, I like I like both of them. Is that okay? So uh, he's in Samaria. The Samaritans didn't know really anything about Christ. Neither did they want to know. They could care less. They were unimpressed by Jesus. So they rejected him. They didn't receive him into that town. The disciples went in there to have them prepare him to come in, a place to stay for the night or whatever. And they say, no, you can't come into our town. We don't want you here. We're going to make provisions for you? No way. <laughs> that's, that's kind of the idea. And so uh, it says here, uh, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. That's why they, they know he's traveling there. He's not one of them. He's not a Samaritan. Samaritans are half-breeds. They were Jewish, and then, of course, we know that they were the northern tribes, and then uh, they were taken by Assyria, and uh, they were scattered. They married to different races, different people. And so, guess what? They were really half-breeds at best. They don't like the Jews. The Jews don't like them. Even though they have some Jewishness in them, they were a part of the ten tribes, but as they were scattered about. 
So there is a natural hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so you have James, you have John here, and I guess they're kind of like Jonah. They'd rather watch their enemies suffer the wrath of God than experience His grace. And I think that's a lesson probably for me and, and all of us. There are a lot of people that hate Christ. We take that personally. And I think we should because He is our King. But at the same time, we have to see what we're all about. So we can't be so consumed with this world and everything in it that we'd want everything else to, everything to burn up. He'll bring it on, Lord. We're ready. Let's go. He came to seek and to save those who are lost. And yes, that would be enemies to our nation, the Muslims, all the haters of this country, the haters of Christianity, Christians, most of all, haters of Christ. But yet some of them have become Christians and they're no longer part of that lifestyle. Some of them will become Christians. And so therefore, it's putting it back into the reality here and it's amazing how Jesus uses this little story I think that helps us uh, understand why He came because He really could have gotten rid of the Jews and everybody there because they didn't deserve anything. He could have gotten rid of all the other nations, the Gentiles. But here it is. Um, I think this is something again that's not natural. Um, the supernatural thought of what Christ is doing in the world always has to be at the top of the line, but we never are to cave into those particular cultures and customs that would be dishonoring God and the way of thinking and such. So they entered this village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for Him, but they didn't receive Him because He was traveling toward Jerusalem. They know He's a Jew. He's going to the temple there. When His disciples, James and John, saw this, that they were not going to receive Him, Lord, here's the deal. Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? You want us to go ahead and have a supernatural thing? We do have the power. We have that kind of power to do that with, with, with you being behind it. And we have a kingdom that's coming. And because they've treated you this way, why don't we just blow them to kingdom God? Now where did James and John get that? from a guy who was very godly, a prophet by the name of Elijah. James and John, just previously, a few days before this, had been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who did they see besides Jesus? Moses and Elijah. That's our hero! So we turn to 2 Kings chapter 1. Great little story here. And James and John knew their Scripture. 
sometimes we know the Scripture, and sometimes we misuse the Scripture to justify our own sinful rage. So here we go. Here is Elijah. Start at verse 1. Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. So Israel has its enemy against them, and Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber, which was in Samaria, and became ill. So he sent messengers and said to them, Go inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I will recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Then Elijah departed. Well, there, see there are messengers. And you have Elijah here. And Elijah is going to speak for God, and he, as he does. So, verse 5, when the messengers returned to him, he said to them, Why have you returned? They said to him, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? You see, that king is actually saying that there is, we don't have any God. We'll go to the God of uh, Ekron. Beelzebub is who he's inquiring of rather than God. That is not too cool, is it? God does not like that. They haven't been believing in God anyway. But he is really showing it now. Elijah is going to have a message for him. <laughs> Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed where you have gone up, but shall surely die. That's what the prophet says. You'll not ever get out of bed. You're going to die. That's what he said. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came up to meet you and spoke those words to you? What kind of man is he? They answered him, Well, he was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. And he said, It's Elijah the Tishbite. He didn't say it there, but this is a man of God. (laughs) Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him. Behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill, and he said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. Elijah replied to the captain of fifty, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. That's Elijah. Elijah was... A powerful prophet, wasn't he? John the Baptist came in the way that Elijah did. You know, gruff. Not a pretty boy, you know. And the thing is, he spoke the Word of God in all trueness. So, those 50 got taken out. Well, what's going to happen now? So again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 with his 50. Now the king's going to die. He's already sacrificed 50 and so he's going to do another 50. He doesn't think that's going to happen again, right? And he said to him, O man of God, thus says the king, come down quickly. Elijah replied to them, if I'm a man of God, 
Okay, you call me a man of God. Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and you're 50. And the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and is 50. God is showing His judgment. God is a God of wrath. And He did it right there. He did it through Elijah. If God didn't want to do that, He wouldn't have done it. That needed to be done. It was. They were godless people. They were calling on false gods. It's being very well... uh, announced what was happening. So the king again sent the captain of a third 50 with his 50. That sounds like back to Egypt and Pharaoh, doesn't it? This is hard-hearted. Can't get any truth to them. I mean, a hundred of them have been burned up now. When the third captain of 50 went up, he came and bowed down on his knees before Elijah and begged him and said to him, O man of God, please let my life and the lives of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the first two captains of 50 with their 50s, but now let my life be precious in your sight. The angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose, went down with him to the king. So he goes to the king now. Then he said to him, Elijah speaking to the king of the Samaritans, Thus says the Lord, Because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Why wouldn't you go to the true god? Therefore, You shall not come down from the bed when you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Just as the Lord had said. Elijah says it again. Guess what? This is what James and John knew and with their personalities that they had. And just seeing Elijah not too long back, these are the Samaritans. These are the same people. Can we do what Elijah did? (laughs) Jesus came to seek and save the lost. The lost are anybody who doesn't know Christ. There are some really wicked, evil people out there. And I know God is going to judge everybody who does not trust in Him. So... When there are people that are very evil and wicked, say things and do things, I get pretty upset. And to a degree, that should be right because it offends our holy God. At the same time, in the same breath, it's like, okay, I need to be praying for them that they would see the truth of Christ. Even though it would be awfully easy to take the Jonah attitude. Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You don't know what kind of spirit you are of. The Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives. We never saw Him do a quick judgment on people whenever He was working here, did we? He could have very easily. Can you imagine just blowing up the enemies? Boom, 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 just like that. He could have done that. But that wasn't what He came to do. But when He comes back the second time, He will do that. So all of those who are going against 
God and His wisdom, and they don't trust in Him, if they never trust, God will fully pay for what they've done. God will make them pay. He will put full judgment. His wrath will be put upon them. They were calling for His wrath at that moment. And He says, that's not what I came here for. They were speaking out of ignorance. They don't realize the implications of what they were even saying. They're speaking with a wrong spirit here. But you know what? The Lord is the judge. And He will judge perfectly one day. At the same time, we are to, to, to live in a way, believe the things that He has, pray for our nation, pray for our president who's trying to do the very best job that he can and making the promises that were true and right, and to pray for him and all those under him, the vice president, and coming all the way down to the state government and even local government. And we know that there are people on other sides who are haters of them, would do anything. But at the same time, God created these people. A lot of them will probably never ever change. That's just the way they are. We cannot do anything to judge them, although God's judgment has already been made. When Christ comes back, that full judgment will be brought forth. And we can thank the Lord because of that, because we don't want people who don't like Him, who hate Him, into the kingdom of God, do we? To spend eternity with them, we don't want them. And yes, there is that kind of spirit that we only want the people who God brings into that kingdom. And if they are people who come from a background that we can't even understand and relate to, (laughs) guess what? They are equal with us if they trust in Him. God, be gracious to them, right? So, there's a proper time to shake off the dust off our feet and protest. Jesus told them to do that. You know, if they if they refuse you, and they're definitely refusing Christ here, uh, you know, you go on. Um, but we don't want to jump the gun. God is patient. He's not willing for any to perish. So we have to reflect His love and His patience toward those who are even opposed to Him. The best thing that could happen is that their lives would be changed. We know that there are laws that, that need to be, and we, we need those laws sometimes. We, we need to get them passed. But ultimately, those things will be changed. Back and forth it goes. And do what you can. As a citizen of this nation, as a citizen of the kingdom of God, we want righteousness to prevail, so preach it. But the gospel is at the heart of it all. Is it offending the gospel? Yes. Okay then. Then pray for your enemies. He said, love your enemies. This is not natural to say. This is about humbling this is about mercy. And so we see the mercy, we see the humility that Jesus taught here that actually is totally different than the way that people would play it out. We would pray that God would grant people repentance. And so that is the lesson to James and John. You know what? Later on, they went out to the rest of the world, to the Gentile nations, and preached the gospel of the saving message of the kingdom. Had they not been ready for it, why would they go out to people who don't want Christ 
so that they would believe and repent. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your lesson on humility, on really what real greatness is. May we continue to learn. Lord, we pray for this nation. We know that we are in perilous times. And there are enemies who want to destroy every good thing that has been laid. Any kind of a foundation that came from God's law, Ten Commandments and such, we know that a lot of those laws people want to destroy because they come from You. And we we stand for You. We stand for Your righteousness. At the same time, as there's like a double-edged sword, we are to be praying and desiring that people who hate You would see the person of Christ and come to Him to repent and to trust in Christ alone. What a great story that is when we see one who has been changed entirely. And that's us. You took us from our pride, our hatred against You, and brought us to You and Your truth. Keep changing us, Lord. We have a long way to go. But we thank You for Your Word and Your truth that we would honor You and glorify You. For that is what life is about. To deny self, take up the cross, and follow Christ. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.